0: In the name of the father and the son and god's holy spirit one god amen a cool damp march morning ever gray clouds shade the emerging sunrise piles of soiled snow take up two parking spots as i enter the east lot a handful of cars randomly scattered about. A few guests stand quietly at the east entrance, inhaling their morning nicotine fix. Funny how we're always very diligent about accompanying them up there in the evening, not so much apparently during the cold pre-dawn hours. Paul Dunkerley, looking like he's had all of two hours of sleep, waves at me as he loads his pillow and sleeping bag into the back of his car. I enter through the glass doors as Matt Howell, clipboard in hand, is coming up from the basement, er, lower level. Efficiently checking his list of riders and drivers, they have of course been methodically arranged since last night, he is wondering now if the bus is running, if the driver is running, on time or late again. Down the stairs, the building has a distinctly SOS scent to it. Doug Hart, Mary Ritchie, and Bill Paulson, the morning drive team, are standing off to the side waiting, some of them on their second cup of coffee. Is it a prerequisite to be perpetually early to drive as part of the morning team? Standing in the kitchen pass-through, Bev Quinn is hocking blueberry muffins and reminding guests one by one to take your lunch with you today. It's all pretty low-key this early in the morning certainly compared to last night when the Outbears were running their annual Las Vegas bingo night, Charlie Hunt with the call. All that following another luxurious dinner prepared by the Dobie Clan or uh, the Vander Wheels Friends and Neighbors Ensemble. They have to work pretty hard to live up to the high bar that has been set by David and Carl's yummy appetizers, or Bob Blakely's Thanksgiving extravaganza. Marilyn sits alone at one of the white round tables, dimly lit by the tasteful golden chandelier hung every year by Barney Borges. She is chattering with Aaron Outbear, er, Marshall, Aaron Marshall, on her cell phone. It has been a quiet night. Good group this year, better than some. Marilyn remembers all too well the week with no power. Shelter by candlelight. Or last year's Shelter Avec COVID. It won't be long before the crowded the crowd disperses for the day and the newly renovated quarters breathe a sigh of relief. Interrupted only by Chris Peterson or Lynn Dunkerley or Lisa White swooping in to pick up dirty towels and linens. Brian Fuller running a vacuum cleaner. Sandy or Jonathan Jensen baptizing the bathrooms with that distinctly pine-sol aftershave scent. And then in just a few hours, the same servants will be back to do it all over again. It's not a one morning, of course, it's a composite of many faces and images that make up what is annually one of the finest weeks of the year, one of the times that makes you glad, dare I say proud, to be a member of this church family. So we have been walking this fall. Since the beginning of October, walking to Bethlehem, very industriously, And for the past couple of weeks, thinking together about our walk with God. And just as walking is good exercise for us physically and emotionally, we have been thinking about some of the core exercises that are good for us um, spiritually. So in week one, we talked about worship. This annual reminder um, that it is not all about us, nor is it all up to us. We are all part of a much bigger story. Last week, we talked about the importance of intentionally continuing to grow spiritually by studying the scriptures, by using our God-given brains, by listening to the people and the events, the experiences in our lives where God wants to continue to speak to us. And this morning, we come to the third of those core exercises, service. I looked it up this week. In the scriptures, the words serve, service, servant appear over a thousand times. A thousand times. The book of Joshua that Beth just read to us from reaches its dramatic conclusion when Joshua, Moses' protege, now aging, nearing death, says to the leaders of the people, Now revere the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, though, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's parting words to the Israelites. Serve the Lord. Now, in week one, we learned a Greek word, latreo, which involves serving God through worship. Certainly one important dimension of serving. That's why we began with it a couple of weeks ago. That's what we're here to do today. But service is much more than an act of worship. We are meant to serve God by doing good by living out God's will in our lives. So before we had these beautiful glass doors, we used to have a sign on our exit door that actually said, the worship is over, the service begins. A reminder to us, a weekly reminder that God most often in this world works through people, through people like you and me. So you and I are meant to ask What does God want? What what does God need us to do? How can I embody God's love and God's justice? How can I bring healing to a broken world? In the sixth chapter of Genesis, that's the Noah stories, there is a passage that has always haunted me. It says that God looked out on the world that God had made God saw the evil and the violence that human beings were doing to each other. And this is actually what it says. God regretted making human beings. God was so heartbroken. The injustice in the world left God heartbroken. It reminds me of that day in the Gospels where you remember Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. He crests the Mount of Olives riding on that donkey. He sees the beautiful panorama, which is the city of Jerusalem, and he begins to cry. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, would that today you knew the things that make for peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. When God looks over our world today, what do you suppose breaks God's heart? I know. Let me count the ways. And I think God cries out, as he did to the prophet Isaiah, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And you and me, we are meant to say, I am here, Lord. Send me. I have known Christians, and I suspect all of you have, um, who seem to believe that all God wants for us is to show up at church on Sunday, occasionally read the scripture and pray, and then just not do too many bad things in our lives. But following Jesus is about so much more than that. We are called to not just not do bad things, we are called to do good, to pursue justice, in the scriptures over and over again, Jesus is not so intent on getting us to do what we need to to get into heaven, but rather to tell us what we need to do in this life. And when we fail to do those things, our worship is worthless in God's eyes. So God speaking through the prophet Isaiah says, what should I think about all your sacrifices? I'm fed up with your burnt offerings. Your incense repulses me. Instead, God says, learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Now, Isaiah, of course, served as a mentor to Jesus. So in his first sermon, you remember, in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus stands up and he reads from the prophet Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And so he devotes most of his time to people who are marginalized, to peasant people, lepers, physically and mentally ill people. He notes that in the end, you and I will be judged not by our right beliefs. I'm sorry to all of the fundamentalists. Not by our right beliefs, but by whether we feed the hungry, clothe the naked, welcome the foreigner into our land. He says that when we come alongside those who are in need, it is as though we are doing it to him. And when we fail to do so, it is as though we turned our backs on him. Among the things I appreciate about being part of the reformed tradition, whether you know it or not, as Presbyterians, you're part of the reformed tradition. That's our theology. Um, One of the things I love about that is how the Protestant reformers took that call to service very much to heart. So John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, uh, led the abolition movement in Great Britain. John Calvin, the founder of the Presbyterian Church, lobbied politically to get clean water and plumbing to the poorest districts of Geneva. When those reformers came to this country, they started public education. They opened colleges and universities, hospitals and clinics, orphanages, daycare programs, all of which culminated in that lofty vision captured in the concluding line of the Pledge of Allegiance, where we pledge allegiance to a nation that seeks not only liberty, but justice for all. I have known people, I I suspect you have, who criticize organized religion, and not without some justification. But when I look at organized religion, frankly, I find it a lot more impactful than what you might call disorganized religion or solitary religion. So fine for you to tell me that you're very spiritual, but you're not very religious. But here's what I want to know. Show me the bacon. Show me where it has really changed your life and caused you to go out and serve the people who God most cares about, those who are most in need. Show me the bacon. I think of all the initiatives that that are organized by members of churches that I know. And honestly, is this not one of the most important reasons that you are here and a part of this church? Because there are so many ways that you can make a difference. People out raking leaves yesterday so that seniors can stay in their own homes. And next week, an entranceway that is filled with these Thanksgiving baskets that can be delivered to people in the community. And just a few weeks from now, you'll have the chance to uh, make Christmas gifts available to families downriver through Wendy's Guidance Center. During Advent and Christmas, we're going to be raising money for Detroit's Freedom House. It's a wonderful program that is helping refugees move into American society. Over the years, we have built a well in Kenya. We have helped to rescue animals at the Howell Nature Center. We've helped to keep teenage girls off the streets of Detroit. We've helped refugees overseas. Through the crop walk, we have raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for church world service, for the welcome in. Here we are just a few days after a contentious election. I am reminded that. Every one of us has a responsibility to speak up for the vulnerable and the marginalized voting our convictions. We are always hesitant to talk about politics in the church, and we are frankly sometimes slow to bring together our faith and our politics. Christians may differ about how. We should never disagree about whether we believe Government should be involved in addressing issues of justice. A government will only be concerned about its poor and vulnerable to the degree that its voting people stand up on their behalf. In one of his powerful sermons, A Knock at Midnight, Dr. King said it this way. He said, the church must be reminded it is not the master or the servant of the state. It is the conscience of the state. The two great commands that Jesus lifted up from his Hebrew tradition. You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. And you cannot do the first without doing the second. And that love is not a feeling. It is a way of life. Interesting, there is something about doing good works purely for others, not expecting to get anything in return that actually blesses and heals us. In their book, When Good Things Happen to Good People, Stephen Post and Heidi Niemark describe an eight week study involving 137 people who had multiple sclerosis, MS. Now some of those patients in the study met once a week with a physician who was skilled in caring for people with that disease. But other patients only received a weekly phone call from a fellow MS sufferer who simply offered support and encouragement. Post and Niemark included that study in their book because of a surprising result. The five MS sufferers who made those phone calls to their fellow sufferers as part of the study, actually showed improvement in their disease, simply by offering encouragement to others. It turns out that giving support to others, kindness, has a therapeutic value for the giver. The Mayo Clinic compiled data from studies about the benefits of volunteering, The studies found that volunteering actually reduces the risk of depression and lowers stress levels. Another study, this one by a group of sociologists, followed 2,000 people over the course of five years. The researchers were looking for factors in people's lives that correlated with happiness. And so they focused on people who Um, reported that over this time, they were very happy. And they discovered that on average, the very happy types volunteered, on average, six hours a week. With that as a barometer, some of you would register as being euphoric. (laughs) The point is, the scientific evidence is overwhelming. Serving others is just good for your health. But not only does it benefit us, physically, and emotionally, it shapes us spiritually. When we serve others, Jesus says, we actually become more like him. Now, it is easier, of course, to practice kindness when we are in a good mood. (laughs) But it turns out it is actually best for us when we are not feeling generous, when we are not feeling gracious. It has a way of rubbing off on us in spite of how we are feeling when we make that phone call to someone who we're thinking about, when we deliver the casserole to somebody who just came home from the hospital, uh, when we write that thinking of you note. I may struggle to see how I can make a significant impact on the injustice of the world. But every day, in multiple ways, I can make kindness my aim. And in case you hadn't noticed, kindness is a revolutionary act in our society these days. Pastor Cindy had a shirt on the other that just said, be kind. Every day, you and I are meant to offer ourselves to God, inviting God to use us as God's instruments of healing, justice, and kindness. To say with Isaiah, Here I am, Lord. Send me. So this morning, I will invite you to conclude with me in a prayer that John Wesley wrote, that he invited his congregation to say every New Year's Day, the first Sunday of every new year. And Sandy's going to put it up for us. Please pray with me. I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen.